0: So, anyway, let's uh, open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. The title of this morning's message is Revival Begins with Judgment of Sin. Revival begins with judgment of sin. <laughs> like, well, that's not a. Normally, not a title that really is seeker friendly. <laughs> You know, uh, we we all like we want to hear about revival, don't we? And uh, but we want to we want something brought to us in such a way that it doesn't cost us much. Most of the time, that's what we're looking for. And yet this uh, kind of revival costs us everything. And so we need to understand what we're asking for when we ask for a revival within the church, because revival does begin with the judgment of our own sin. So we're going to read in uh, Acts chapter 4. We're in the last portion of this, of this chapter, beginning in verse 32. And then I'm going to share with you um, the last portion of what we're covering this morning, and that'll be in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. And so let's begin by reading in verse 32 of chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, verses 1 through 11 in Acts chapter 5 is a story of Ananias and Sapphira. And so, we're going to skip by that real quick and just go to these verses, because I believe these verses, this is not what we see in the church today. We see a mix of people coming in, um, and, and it's not quite what we saw in the first days of the church. But I I wanted to read this through and then go from there. So verse 12 of chapter 5 says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and lay them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, asking for your blessing upon this time of studying. Lord, uh, we know that, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, of knowledge. Lord, I pray that there would be reverence within the church. Lord, that those outside, Lord, would know what it means to gather as your people. That there would be a a, a fear, Lord, of knowing the genuineness of our faith. And also, Lord, that It's not something to take lightly to come into the fellowship of the saints. Lord, you ask for a a pure church. One that is holy and unblemished. Washed by your word. I pray, Lord, that we would take our faith seriously. That we would not be flippant about walking in the spirit And laugh about the world and the things of the flesh. But I pray, Lord, that we would be humble before you. That we would revere you as truly our God and our Lord. And so, Father, we commit this time of study into your hands. We ask that you would speak to us. Give us understanding of your word that you may be glorified in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now up to this point, Peter had preached a couple times. The first time he, uh, we saw 3,000 souls come to faith, and then the second time 5,000 souls came to faith. Imagine that in just a short period of time, 8,000 plus people came to be saved through a simple sermon Of Peter, calling them to repentance and confession of their sins as he made them aware of who Jesus was and how it is that they sinned against God. As they were called by Peter, identifying their offenses toward God, he called them to repent, but he was also calling them to confess their sins, to agree with God that they had offended him. It was a judgment of their sin that had taken place on the cross, but they had to receive that judgment so that personal judgment of sin for eternal condemnation would be known in Christ and salvation be received as a free gift by grace through faith in Him. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, it is written, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Uh, propitiation. It's the satisfaction of God's righteous wrath against the sin of man. He paid it in full and he satisfied the wrath of of God's righteousness. And so we know as more people, in just one sermon, 3,000 people came to understand that and came to surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. Second sermon, 5,000 people came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amazing. The birth of the church was absolutely powerful. And as we read, The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They were genuinely meeting each other's needs as it was necessary. And there were many signs and wonders done regularly by the apostles. And many believers were added to the Lord. It says here it's described as multitudes. And I would say 8,000 in a very short period of time is multitudes. Do you believe it's important for the church to be pure? Do you believe it was important for the church to begin pure and protected from destructive elements then? It is today too. As a baby is pure and protected from destructive elements to give it the best environment to grow strong, so the church is to be pure and protected from destructive elements to give it an environment to grow Strong and healthy. I do hear of many people, the desire of many people to see a revival within the church. I know if I were to ask you, I don't know of any one of you that, that wouldn't desire to see a revival. It's exciting, it's something that we want to be a part of, right? To see a revival within the church take place. But well, we need to also realize that revival begins with our own personal judgment of sin and an, an acknowledgment of where we are before a holy and righteous God and truly give everything over to the Lord. Dr. J. Edwin Orr was a Baptist Christian minister who died in 1987. Of him, Billy Graham had this to say, quote, Dr. J. Edwin Orr, in my opinion, is one of the greatest authorities on the history Of religious revivals in the Protestant world, close quote. In Doctor J. Edwin Orr's last sermon titled "Revival is Like Judgment," Orr describes how the coming of revival is almost always distinguished by a sweeping work of God in dealing with the sins of believers. There is an overwhelming work that happens within the body of Christ because revival begins. Here. Right here. Jerry Bridges wrote a book titled Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. And in it he writes, in the introduction, quote, the motivation for this book stems from a growing conviction that those of us whom I call conservative evangelicals may have become so preoccupied with some of the major sins of society around us that we have lost sight of the need to deal with our own more, quote-unquote, refined and subtle sins close quote. So this morning, I'd like to challenge you, the church. I know sometimes we come in tired, preoccupied in our own minds about what's coming up later on today, this coming week. The weight of the circumstances that we found ourselves in distract us. We're thinking of what someone else has done to us and how they should be here to hear this. We have all kinds of things that are distracting us from what the Lord wants to do with you this morning through his word. I challenge you to perhaps sit up a little straighter and listen a little closer. and Perhaps even more intently than how you would normally to what the Lord has to say to you individually. Revival starts with you. Because if you genuinely desire to see revival take place within the church, it begins with you judging your sin, confessing your sin, repenting of your sin, and then remaining consistent in living a life that both glorifies the Lord personally and you are passionate about telling others about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ gladly denying self, picking up your cross, and following Jesus Christ every single day. You see, everyone, at least a lot of people, they say that they believe in Jesus Christ. I mean, if you ask most Americans, they say, we believe in, I believe in God. But there's a difference between, and I want to make this very clear, there's a difference between salvific belief And just general belief or acknowledgement of the existence of God. And the chasm, the gap is wide and it cannot be crossed once we leave this earth. Some people, they say, well, I believe. Okay, well, even the demons believe and they tremble. At least they tremble. I know a lot of people that, that don't tremble. I believe in God. Here's a test to see if you if you actually have a salvific faith. Do you desire to glorify the Lord? Is there any fruit in your life that says, I myself, I, I desire to deny myself, pick up my cross, and follow the Lord, because the Lord said Himself, These are those whom are my disciples. Those who deny themselves, pick up their cross, die to themselves, and then follow me. He said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Do you know what those are? There's a difference between salvific belief and just a general belief in God. Church, I desire that you would not come out of here thinking, That just because you believe in God, that you're saved. Because remember, even the demons believe and tremble, and yet they are fallen. You need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Revival begins with you. If you've been here and compromising in the Lord, doing your own thing, stubborn in your ways, in your pride, anger, bitterness, resentment, holding grudges, all of that. The Lord says, all of those things you need to confess, you need to bring to me. Why? Because the Bible, not because the pastor said, but because the Bible says there's sin. What do we do with our sin? We confess our sins. As we confess our sins to the Lord, he says in his word, First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Church, we need a cleansing, we do. We need to gladly deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Jesus, and then bring others along. We're going to see pure and powerful, a pure and powerful, powerful church, polluted and perverse, what that can do or possibly do to the church. And a pure and powerful reverence for God, as we read. Let's begin once again reading in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought, them, brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means sons of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Pure and powerful. Again, the church had quickly grown To over 8,000 people in a very short period of time. Those that believed are described here as being of one heart and soul. Some translations say of one heart and mind. Just the the mind, the the thoughts, the way they thought, the the way they perceived the world was united. And united in Christ. Not because they all agreed, they came to an agreement. But because they were united in Jesus Christ. They were of one mind and one heart. It doesn't mean an outward conformity where everyone looks exactly the same, talks the same, and you know, has everything that's the same. But rather, it's an inward unified transformation of the heart and soul that originates from the same source, Jesus Christ. A godly character as defined by Scripture and actively working by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, all of us need to look the same in that sense to where this godly character is what we find unites us and is a part of each and every one of us. There is this trust that builds within the body of Christ if that is what we live out day in and day out. We don't have any reason to mistrust each other. We know that we're going to deal with things in a way that glorifies the Lord and blesses each other. We know that. There's this comparison that I want to make between uh, chapter 2 and what we read here in verses 32 and 33. Hold your place there and go with me to Acts chapter 2 verse 43. Actually, we'll go to verse 42 and then we'll go to verse 1 as we go through And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So we've read this before. And now in chapter 4 and verse uh, 32, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Were of one accord. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. So they shared. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Mega power. Mega grace. In this unity. In this coming together of the early community of Christians. That by the way it 's in this chapter that the gathering of the Christians was first referred to as the church or Ecclesia in Spanish, we could say iglesia right that 's where it comes from from the gathering of the brethren now together, they characterize the community life as marked by four things as we see see here between the two. Uh, sections of scripture, both in chapter 2 and and in verse 4. Number 1, their unity in heart and mind. Number 2, their sharing of their possessions. Number 3, the power and witness of the apostles. And number 4, the grace of God, which says here, rested upon them all. It was reflected in them, all of these things. And I cannot emphasize enough the basis of their overarching concept of their unity. I know we hear this a lot within the church, this unification of the church coming together. But what I see being compromised in that unity is truth. And coming together just for the sake of unity. Let's all look like we're together when, in fact, sometimes the churches are unifying with other groups that are not of the truth. We can't do that and say that we're united in Christ, united in the truth. The overarching concept of their unity. It was a unity of their fellowship in the spirit which led them to being of one heart and soul. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads us in all truth, which is according to the word of God. It was because of this unity in the spirit that they shared with each other as any had need. Uh, This is not an example and basis upon which we are to sell everything, pull all our resources together, and then draw as any has need. Uh, We we don't live in a communist society, uh, in a socialism. We don't don't live in that way, and that's not what we see here being taught in Scripture. Because what we see here is, is that it was all voluntary, the sharing of Whatever they had and however it was that they could help out was all voluntary. It wasn't required by the church leadership or according to scripture. From time to time, as there were needs, people did what they could to help each other out. And I can tell you that I am blessed by the church and the things that I hear and see within the body here. How it is that as one comes to need something, that someone else comes along and helps out. It's truly beautiful. It's truly wonderful. Later in the New Testament, in some of Paul's other letters, he will address the care of godly widows who are of a certain age and how it is that they're tested to be genuine in their faith and how able people are to work and provide. And so there is ample evidence in Scripture that this was something completely voluntary by believers whose hearts were moved by the Lord to help out as there was need. But notice in verse 33, because this is what is in the center of this Christian generosity. Once again, verse 33 says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Because the needs of the people was not an issue, and people were taking care of each other, The testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was going out with great power and with great grace, as great grace was upon them. See, everything else was being taken care of. The people were taking care of each other. Uh, You see, Christianity is, is a faith of one anotherness. We are our brother's keepers. We do come alongside each other. We pray for one another. We tend to each other. We, we encourage one another. That's what we are to do. The fellowship of the saints is a beautiful gathering of God's people. As we learn to love him, we learn to love on each other as well. You see, when the church is pure, the church is powerful. Powerful. But when there is unrepented sin and rebellion and worldly attitudes and compromise, the attention of the church goes from being a powerful witness of the transforming power of a resurrected life in Jesus Christ to self. And how the church can cater to personal desires and be what the people want it to be. It shifts. Our whole attention shifts. Oh, now we need to put out this fire and put that fire out and take care of this and take care of that. No, when the church is pure, that means that the church is maturing, that the church is learning how to walk with the Lord in the Spirit, growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, in applying the truth of God's Word to their relationships, their situations, their circumstances, so that that is not what we focus on, but what we focus on is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our great commission is to go... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we are to do the work of an evangelist. But if we're just focusing on things that really ought not be part of the church, then our focus is taken off what our work ought to be. And we we lose that power. there is not a needy person within the church that cannot learn to be content in the Lord. That those personal desires and personal issues and the things that we deal with cannot have wisdom poured out on it according to God's word and be taught how to deal with those things. In fact, the Apostle Paul learned how to be content Philippians chapter 4 verse 10 says I rejoice I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me you were indeed concerned for me but you had no opportunity not that I'm speaking not that I'm speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Oftentimes we go to that verse and we say, oh, we can do anything and everything. No, no, no. That that verse actually applies to how it is that we can learn to be content in any situation that we find ourselves in. That's what that verse is referring to. And so we within the church need to come to that place to where we learn that contentment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we allow the church as a whole to focus on what is truly given to us as our great commission. To make disciples, to see new people come to Christ, to help them grow in the Lord. Be a part of of what's going on in that sense. But we see an example of a willing and generous heart. Through a man named Joseph. And he was he was renamed by the apostles. I love this. He's renamed Barnabas by the apostles, which means son of encouragement. Oh, I like your name, Timothy, but uh, but you know what? You're a very generous man, and so we're going to call you Barnabas now. Go, okay, Barnabas, it is. So everyone call Timothy Barnabas from here on out. <laughs> and that's what they did. So it, from here on out, you're known as no longer... Joseph, but you're known as Barnabas. You're just, you're an absolute, you're a son of encouragement. You are wonderful in that sense. His character preceded him, and he was well known by how encouraging he was. And we'll see as we continue to study through the New Testament and through the book of Acts, uh, just more evidence we'll see here of of his encouragement, encouraging spirit uh, through our study, especially here in the book of Acts. But this is what it says here. He sold a property of his and brought the whole amount to the apostles. It, it was a free will offering. He, he sold the whole thing, brought the whole amount to the apostles, and laid it at their feet. So it was a free will offering. The second Corinthians 9, 7 says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. When the church is pure, the church is powerful. It is generous and repentive, and knows great grace. But also we see here, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5, uh, a pollution and a perversion that had entered into the church. Verse 1 says, But a man named Ananias and with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon all, upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The story of Ananias and Sapphira, the story of a husband and a wife who agreed to sell a piece of property and keep part of the proceeds to themselves, giving the rest of the apostles, just like Barnabas did, and they, they wanted to give to the church as well, but agreeing, they had agreed to say that they had given The whole amount that they sold the property for to the church. That's what they conspired. That's what they agreed on. And this comes right after the story of Barnabas. And so it's important to understand the significance of this contrast. They both agreed to do this. But we see here that it was only Ananias. That was before Peter. Presenting the quote unquote gift. To the church. Laying. This before the apostles' feet. And as Ananias was presenting this gift, Peter was given the gift of knowledge. Meaning the Lord gave Peter the knowledge of Ananias' deception. And he called him out on it. Verse 3 says, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? To identify immediately. He didn't ask him any questions other than that. Why did you do that? You're, I, I've received divine knowledge of the, the very thing that you've come to do. And Peter identified this act as something that originated in his heart, an idea that planted, was planted there by Satan. As he describes it as Satan filling his heart. The result well, it was lying to the Holy Spirit. And by the way, you can only lie to a person, which means that the Holy Spirit is a person. And God, as we look at verse 4 in the second portion, says that the Holy Spirit is God. And so we see there a description of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Now, in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, it says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Stan, Stanley M. Horton says this, quote, Once the love of money takes possession of a person, there is no evil that he cannot or will not do. Close quote. And I've seen, seen this. The, the, the love of money can grab a person in such a way that they're turned into a, just a whole different person. They're... they're capable and able and willing and to do whatever it is that's necessary to make just more money. When's enough? Well, a little more and a little more and a little more, and they're never satisfied. Well, Peter confronted Ananias, but with Sapphira it was much shorter, as we read, because Peter was seeking a confirmation, a simple confirmation and a confession from her that she had joined her husband in conspiring to lie and test the Holy Spirit, through deception. And so, Peter, we see, confronted first Ananias. And Ananias, this is what we need to understand. Ananias and Sapphira were both part of the church. What we see here, it doesn't mean that they lost their salvation. It means that they committed a sin which led to their death. Perhaps it was even merciful And part of the purifying work of the Lord within the church. Because even Ananias, being a believer, was doing the work of Satan. If if, if anything, you know, Satan wants to infiltrate the church. He he wants to he wants to grab a hold of your thoughts. That's why we need to be very careful. We need to be sober-minded. We need to be alert. We need to understand what's happening around us, how we're thinking, how we're acting, how we're speaking. Is it all according to the flesh and perhaps some thoughts that Satan has put into our minds? Or is it according to the word of God and according to the spirit of God that we may glorify the Lord in the way we conduct ourselves, the way we speak, the way we think, the way we are with one another? Because even within the church, we can be doing the work of Satan. John 8, 44 says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And that was our Lord Jesus referring to the religious leaders of the time. And Peter told Ananias, Hey, listen, Was it not in your hand to do what you please with this property? In other words, he was telling telling him, you didn't have to do this. So what was Ananias and Sapphira's motive? Was it to appear generous and godly like Barnabas? There's this contrast that we can't escape here between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. You know, Joseph was now called Barnabas. Why? Because he was a, a... he was so encouraging. And perhaps they saw how it was that Barnabas was, was really praised. And perhaps they, they wanted that. We don't know. But we do know that their motive is not right. We do know that. We do know and are warned that even something that appears good to others may be a serious act of evil. When the intent is born in our hearts by Satan and not God. We can't, we can't hold on to it. This is why I said at the very beginning, revival starts with us. There's a, if you're sitting right here and you know of something that is just not right in your own heart, quickly repent of it. Confess it to the Lord and agree with them. It's not right, Lord. I want to be glorifying and honoring to you. I, I want to live uprightly before you with a clear conscience, a pure heart, clean hands. That's what I desire. Be quick to confess your sins and repent. Ananias was told that he had lied to God. Ananias tried to deceive who? Peter? Perhaps he thought he was deceiving Peter. But it was worse. He was trying to deceive the Holy Spirit. Imagine that. He was trying to pass off the offering as the whole amount of what they had sold the property for. They could have been honest and said, "Yes, we sold it for so much, Peter, but you know we kept back part of it, and so this is what we're giving to the church." That would have been fine, absolutely fine. But they didn't. Ananias came and he says, "Yeah, this is what we sold. Everything we're giving to you, everything. Isn't this great?" They didn't do that. They didn't do what was right. In first Peter chapter four, <clears throat> verse twelve, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But listen to this, verse 15. Verse 15, don't let any of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or even as a meddler. It's time for judgment to begin in the house of the Lord. Now, with Ananias and Sapphira, it may seem like the consequences were severe for what they did. God's no different today, but there is delayed judgment. Thank God for delayed judgment. Because every single one of us deserve to fall right now, like Ananias and Sapphira. We do. That's what we deserve. We deserve to just fall dead right now. But thank God for delayed judgment, and he's he's long-suffering with us. He's patient with us. Thank God for his mercy. If this happened... All the time, uh, our churches would be would <laughs> be empty. There is a sin that leads to death, in First John five sixteen and seventeen uh, that refers to it, the early taking of a saint from the earth because of something they're doing or have done. We need to realize this: that nothing is hidden from the eyes of the Lord; all is exposed, according to Hebrews. And, and we need to note a few things here. Just because a husband and a wife agree doesn't mean it's right. I'm going to repeat that because sometimes we think just because husbands and wives come together and agree that we're right eh. (laughs) and that's not that's not true. We need to choose wisely before we both agree and one of the two spouses needs to also stand for the truth and say no honey. That's actually not right. That's love, by the way. Because God loved us in that way. He warns us in his word. No, that's that's not right. That's not right. If you go down that path, it's a path of destruction. That's love. So we ought to do that with each other. Make sure that what you agree on lines up with God's word. You need to do that. Rebellion and deception are before the Lord. We need to also understand this. God judges and applies justice. So proceed with reverence for the Lord. When judgment is applied and seen, great fear strikes the heart of the people. We also need to note that also. You know, when there's, there's a judgment that comes, oh, great fear. All of a sudden, we have this fear of the Lord. Verse 11, that's, that's where we left off, and great and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. When the church is pure, the church is powerful. When the church is polluted and perverse, it needs to be purified. Be reverent of God and repent of your sins before God's patience turns to judgment and discipline because we know that whom God disciplines is whom He loves. So let's not wait for that. Let's be that child of God that. That acknowledges our sin and says, I'm sorry God, I confess my sins, I agree that this is a sin, and I turn from it, please forgive me, please. Judge your own sin while you can, because 1 John 1, 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Allow the word of God to reveal your own sin and repent. God desires that we would come to repentance. And lastly, a pure and powerful reverence for God. Verse 12 says, "Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that even they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on the, on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem bringing the sick", sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So, finally, we see here a powerful example of a church that feared God. Of a people who feared God. Notice how there was a fear even within the body of believers, but there was a fear. Of, I'm, I'm not, hey, Joe, I'm, I'm not going in there. <laughs> hey, Rich, I'm not going in there, Right? i i i've seen what's going on i i I see that i'm not going in there why because i i do fear their god i do have a fear and those within were genuinely reverent toward the lord after all that the people had seen and heard and experienced they kept their distance except for the believers as they were in fellowship together and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. That's what we can't miss here. Multitudes of both men and women. It was a church that was, it was young, and there was a lot of excitement, but at the same time, there was a lot of reverence. Oh, Ananias and Sapphira, they just dropped dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. Oh, that, that would strike some fear. It's like, oh, next time we come in... And- and, and, you know, as they're passing the bag around and we're giving of our, you know, tithe and our offering, let's do it with a cheerful heart. Right? It's with reverence. Why? Because you, didn't, you never know. You could fall dead. <laughs> Boom. Right? There needs to be reverence. There needs to be great understanding of what, what are we doing? Are we just coming just to get our ears tickled a little bit? Feel good so when you go home, it's like, oh, that was, that was pretty neat. That was cool. That was, he doesn't tell that many stories and jokes, and maybe we'll have to go somewhere else. I don't know, but, but I kind of feel good when I left there. No, no, no. We should come ready to worship the Lord. God, the creator of the universe. Think about this. The creator of the universe. We're here in this place to worship him. We're here to sing his praises. God. He's not just some spirit floating around. He's, he's not in everything. And no. He's a personal God who sent his son to die on the cross for you. That's who we're coming to worship. Sing, singing his praises. We're come to, coming to learn more about him so, so we can learn to love him that much more. That's who we're here for. So if you're here and taking it lightly, I I pray that God convicts you deeply in your heart, that you seriously pay attention. What, What are you here for? The people were in awe of what was taking place. Truly in awe. Amazed. But the people outside... They dared not join the believers unless they had genuinely surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ and committed to following him. They came and they brought sick people. The word here doesn't say, by the way, that the shadow of Peter actually healed them. But they believed that perhaps the shadow of Peter would would strike them and perhaps that would heal them. Kind of like the garment of Jesus. Oh, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. It was a faith. It was a faith in Jesus Christ. His power that healed them. not Peter not John not James not anyone else it was the power of Jesus Christ which he still heals even today if he so chooses they brought all the sick people there was a powerful display of God's power of healing through the apostles but again i have to make the distinction between bodily healing and spiritual healing because that's what they were doing as well back in verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their t- testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. As they knew and believed they would come to experience God's great grace. This was an example of a pure and powerful reverence for God. Pure and powerful, polluted and perverse. And a pure and powerful reverence for God. And I'll close with this. The Holy Spirit was the power behind the unity of the church. And its unity was the power behind its witness. The church can only thrive as a people of God. If it lives within the total trust of all its members. Where there is unity of trust. That oneness of heart and mind. The church flourishes. In the power of the Holy Spirit. But where there is duplicity and distrust, its witness actually falters. It fails. Revival begins with our personal judgment of sin. So confess your sins. Be quick to do that. Turn to God and walk with him in sincerity of heart, with a true reverence for the Lord. And make sure you enjoy the Lord as you give your whole heart to him with a great hope of being in his glory for all eternity. Father, we, I pray. I pray that we come to you with a sincere love and understanding of who you are. And I do pray, Father, that you would bring anyone here to salvation that does not know salvation. Lord, we, we talked about just the, the test of a, of a life that's saved, uh, of a transformed life. Is there any fruit? Is there any distinction between us and the world? Is, is there anything that tells us that we are yours? And if there's not, Lord, I, I pray that no one here would, would leave without surrendering their hearts to you that they would find their life in you. Because your word tells us that if we confess our sins, that not only are you faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all all unrighteousness, but your word tells us that there is salvation in no other name, for for salvation is known through Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so I pray, Lord, that if anyone here does not know you as Lord, as Savior, that they confess their sins to you, ask you for your for your forgiveness, and ask that you be their Lord and Savior. That today be the day of salvation. And for anyone who has been in compromise, Lord, holding on to some sin, whatever that may be, perhaps it was revealed this morning, I pray, Lord, that there would be a confession of that, that your church certainly would be pure here, that this gathering of the saints would be a a fellowship of saints who are humble before you, our holy and righteous God, that we desire to be unified in spirit and mind with our hearts fully committed and devoted and given to you. Let us be a pure church. Help us to act on what we've come to know.